If there's one thing the pacifists and generals agree on, it's that war is terrible. The dictionary definition of terrible is causing terror. If war by its very nature causes terror, then what's the difference between war and terrorism? That is the subject of the next two episodes of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to episode 61 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. These podcasts introduce what I believe are enduring lessons of war, lessons for any citizen to use in fulfilling their role in our country's deliberations about war, peace, and everything in between. Okay, so terrorism is something that we may think of as being completely new, maybe a new form of warfare that emerged in the late 20th century and has become the primary mode of warfare in this century. The reality is that terrorism has been part of warfare for almost as long as acts of war have been recorded. But before I go on from here, I need to define what we mean by terrorism. There are many definitions of terrorism, some extremely long and convoluted, such as that found in the U.S. Patriot Act, some less so. And international law doesn't define terrorism at all. NATO, however, does have a definition, and one that's more useful to the study of war than definitions designed for U.S. domestic law. This NATO definition describes terrorism as, quote, the unlawful use or threatened use of force or violence against individuals or property in an attempt to coerce or intimidate governments or societies to achieve political, religious, or ideological objectives, unquote. The common dictionary definition is substantially the same while being substantially shorter, reading, violent action for political purposes. Now, for those who have heard previous podcasts in this series or those who study the theory of war, these definitions might sound uncomfortably familiar. War, using Clausewitz's definition, is, quote, an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. Further, he insisted that the means and methods of war must be ordered on achieving a political objective. What then makes terrorism different than war? If there is a difference, is that difference meaningful? Once upon a time, there was such a thing as private war. But since the 17th century, war is the sole prerogative of a state or an organization aspiring to be a state, for an example of the latter, think of the nascent United States before it was recognized as a country by Britain or any other country. This leads to the principal distinction between war and terrorism, whether resorting to the use of force is sanctioned under international law, and this is very important. This series has addressed this before, and I will continue to come back to it. War, whether we call it war, armed conflict, or hostilities, is fought by an entity recognized as having or claiming the right to do so. In just war terms, it's waged by a competent authority. The next distinction between war and terrorism is that war must be fought in accordance with the accepted laws and customs of war. In just war terms, it has to use just means and methods. 
Minimally, this means wearing uniforms or distinctive insignia, carrying arms openly, to not deliberately attack non-combatant persons or property. In fact, making at least an effort to avoid destruction beyond military necessity, treat captured enemy military similar to friendly forces, and to avoid using weapons and munitions that may be prohibited by treaty or convention. Now, no nation is perfect in this, none ever have been, but it's at least expected that national policy and military regulations will be consistent with these ideas. Most importantly, the law of war demands that the armed forces are well-disciplined and commanded by officers who are responsible for the conduct of their soldiers or sailors or airmen and so on. Now, terrorists also use violence to achieve political objectives. The difference is that they go about this in a way that turns the concept of just war on its head and seems to deliberately violate all the laws and customs of war. A terrorist is not a freedom fighter by another name. Terrorists do not engage in combat. Instead, they attack the defenseless. As described in several of the more extensive legal definitions of terrorism, their targets are civilians and other persons or property protected under international law and moral codes. Terrorist acts are crimes. They are directed against civilian life, whether directly or indirectly through attacks on property which will lead to civilian death, grave injury, or suffering. The purpose of terrorist violence is not driven by or limited to military necessity. The purpose is to instill fear, to intimidate and coerce the civilian population. In short, to terrorize them. Generally, terrorists do not wear distinctive insignia, nor do they carry arms openly. That would be counter to their method of operation. There are exceptions, which I'll get to later. Their actions may or may not be authorized by a government. Even if they are authorized or sponsored by a government, that government commonly denies responsibility for their actions. Even if the terrorist group has some semblance of internal discipline, their officers, if they have any, are not held accountable for the actions of the terrorists that serve under them. All in all, the only thing that separates the terrorist from a brigand is motivation. Brigands and other organized criminals operate for profit, while terrorists operate for political change. Now, those of you who have followed my other podcasts could ask yourselves right now, well, where do mercenaries fit into this? I'll get to that, but not in this episode. Terrorism then seems to be completely antithetical to conventional warfare, and terrorists would seem to be the natural enemy of professional soldiers, as well as any legitimate government. In the contemporary world, Terrorism as a war form would seem to be the hallmark of the end of conventional warfare. The apparent success of the terrorist war form would then seem to signal the ineffectiveness of the nation-state in the 21st century. It is understandable to come to that conclusion, but if you did, you would be deceived. Terrorism is not new. Although the term terrorism was invented during the French Revolution, the practice predates the time of Christ and the Roman occupation of Israel as a means of asymmetric warfare against a dominant military power. Other pre-20th century groups included the assassins of the medieval Middle East and the thuggees who operated in India for 600 years. In short, the objectives of war and terrorism may be the same, but the means and methods of applying violence are very different. 
It is, however, important to understand that not all insurgents are terrorists. The insurgent warfare described by Clausewitz in On War presumes attacks only on lawful military targets. So long as the insurgents operate under competent authority, are held accountable to that authority, and otherwise conduct operations according to the laws and customs of war, they are not terrorists. On the other hand, just because a force wears uniforms and that force is part of or openly sponsored by a government does not mean that members of that force cannot be considered terrorists or conduct terrorism. Terrorism has even been part of a state's military strategy in war. The most notable examples of this were orchestrated by the Nazi and Imperial Japanese leadership in World War II and led to the current understanding of crimes against humanity. In fact, terrorism has often been official state policy directed against their own populations from ancient times to the present day. One example is the use of Russian-sponsored Cossacks against individuals and property belonging to certain religious or ethnic populations within the Russian Empire. But where is the dividing line? Where does terrorism become war? The Genocide Network of the Council of the European Union took up this question in May 2020 using the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. The bottom line is that there is no clear dividing line. But at a certain point, the terrorists are no longer performing isolated acts, but have taken on the attributes of a state with a high degree of organized violence and control of territory and population. The terrorist organization can still be terrorists, and their criminal acts will still be subject to applicable national law, but the terrorist group may also be considered a non-state armed group and can also be held accountable under the law of armed conflict. In this case, their unlawful acts could be war crimes with universal jurisdiction. Now, I should note here that the United States does not agree with the idea of universal jurisdiction for war crimes, but our laws do allow persons who are members of a declared foreign terrorist organization to be tried in the United States. Further, members of these terrorist organizations or non-state armed groups, and especially their leaders, can be charged with crimes against humanity if their terroristic acts can be held as part of a widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population. Try to remember all of this for the next episode. But for now, why is any of this important? First, it's important to know that terrorism is not something new and has been part of warfare for almost as long as war itself. It's not a new phenomena. War hasn't changed because terrorism is now upon us. Second, although terrorism and war may both use violence to achieve its political objective, war is prosecuted by a state to secure or protect its rights and the rights of its citizens under international law and is subject to international law in its conduct. The violence and terrorism, however, deliberately violates the law and social norms and is primarily directed against the civilian population rather than military objectives. Third, that terrorism can take place during war. Terrorists who are not formal members of the armed forces of a state can be held accountable under national criminal law applicable to civilians, as well as war crimes applicable to the armed forces and crimes against humanity. But what does any of this mean to us as citizens and in the actions of the government that represents us? That will be the subject of the next podcast. Now, these episodes are not monetized or sponsored, not even by you, the listeners. 
So if you would like these episodes to continue, if you think that these are worthwhile, then please don't hesitate to hit like and let me know. Please come back for the next podcast where I'll look at the activity of the Wagner Group in Ukraine and its link to terrorism in the ancient art of modern warfare.